is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays, and joining me today, Mr. Mike Sando. Mike, how are you doing? It is good to be reunited, friend. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. We're talking NFC West, which is my old stomping grounds. And uh, of course, you and I were sort of together. You were at Grantland. I was at ESPN. So we've been teammates before. We have been teammates before. Uh, we've seen each other around for many years. I remember I was writing a Tyron Matthews story at like three in the morning in Miami during Super Bowl week this year, <laughs> sitting next to you at the hotel bar. <laughs> I... I was telling somebody this the other day. I was telling them that I remember in 2007 when they started the divisional reporters at ESPN and you were covering the NFC West. I was in college. I remember like vividly reading you in the newsroom when I was at Mizzou when you got that job. It was you doing the NFC West. It was Kevin Seifert doing the NFC North, right? It was uh, Pat Yasinakis did the NFC South. Pat Yasinskis did the NFC South and then... There was one more. Well, we, well, we the, had oh in the NFC. Uh, Matt Mosley did the NFC, NFC East, right? East, yep. that's right. Paul Kuharski God. and Tim Graham. I that's think, right. Was Paul Kuharski was know? there. Yep, and Tim James Walker. A long time ago, yeah, it was it was great. But at that time, I was actually you know this is how far analytics have come. At that time, I was charting the personnel for all four teams in the division. You know, like 11, 12, <laughs> all that. And I had it in my spreadsheet and. Uh, now, you, now I, we just dial that up on the computer and it comes up in five seconds. But there was some, it was like calisthenics. You get a benefit from doing the work yourself. I just don't have the time to do 32 teams. <laughs> I am very glad that I never had to cover the NFL in that era. This, this one's a lot easier for lazy people like me. We're doing the NFC West today, a division that Mike obviously knows extremely well. And in my opinion, probably the best division in the NFL this season. I mean, top to bottom, you have four teams that could easily make the playoffs. I think you have a couple ready-made contenders in that division. We're going to discuss some of the nuances of those teams, you know, maybe weaknesses we're overlooking, some things that they may not be quite as good at as we assume. So we're going to start with what I assume is the best team in the division, and that's the San Francisco 49ers. I actually am not picking them to win the division. Should, should I, should I wow. reveal that All right, right off the top? Dude, mean, we're no going to do that at the okay. end. We're going to do that at the end. So let's start with the Niners, a team that went to the Super Bowl last season. And obviously the biggest question with San Francisco this year is the improvements they made on both offense and defense last year. I mean, historic jumps when you consider both sides of the ball. If you football outsiders numbers, very rarely do we see that sort of jump in DVOA on both sides. So I think the central question with them is what elements of those improvements were a mirage and how much of it is this team being entrenched as one of the best teams in the league? Well, I don't think it was a mirage at all because, to me, they had a clear vision on both sides of the ball for how they wanted to play, okay? They had the Kyle Shanahan play-action offense, which has worked almost everywhere it's been tried. Uh, They had a simple, sort of safe, sound defense fueled by an elite pass rush and zone coverages, right? There's nothing fluky. Yeah. uh, You know what I mean? those Those are fundamental pillars of football that worked 20 years ago. 10 years ago, they're going to work five years from now, right? I mean, all that stuff. So I think it would be a gross insult to them to say that it was uh, a mirage. But I don't think that means that that's just the way it's going to be forever either. I think their best defensive player was DeForest Buckner. He signed a long-term deal with the Colts. When does that happen? When you take, I'm not going to say generational, but... You know, somebody, if you're on the 49ers, you're hoping this is a Hall of Fame player for you in his prime. 
and you subtract him. Then on offense, your best receiver is probably Emmanuel Sanders. I mean, we could just as a pro receiver could do everything they want to do. Um, he's gone. And then you remove Joe Woods from the defense, who you know has 32 games as a coordinator, uh, has had some success. Obviously, was got a promotion this offseason. You take that away, so I feel like they're a team that's going to have a hard time being as good as they were. Doesn't mean they're going to be bad. But does that make sense? It makes it makes sense in some ways. And I think here's why it makes sense. Because when you make moves like that, when you trade away DeForest Buckner, when you're willing to let Emmanuel Sanders walk, you replace them with younger players. I think it's younger, cheaper players. I think that's a sign that you have the utmost confidence in the structure of your organization, in the your ability to find players, your ability to develop players. So with that in mind, if I if you were ranking the best head coach GM combinations in the league, the ones you'd want for the next decade. Where would you think that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch rank? Because I think it's a telling kind of way to think about how stable this organization is and how entrenched they are as one of the top teams in football. Yeah, I'll give you my I'll give you a little ranking. Now, what are the odds that John Lynch ever drafts a player as good as DeForest Buckner? I mean, it's a 50-50 proposition to even find a decent player in the first round. So I, I completely understand that. He doesn't have some magic way of getting DeForest Buckner. He'll, it'll, it's sort of like tr- trading Jamal Adams. He'll be, he's the best player on the Jets' defense. They won't, with the picks they get, they won't draft someone as good, most likely. They could. So w- if I look at the... Well, Javon Kinlaw's best-case scenario is probably DeForest Buckner. And how many times does a player hit his best-case yeah. scenario? Absolutely, yeah. It's just it's hard to find a really great sort of blue-chip players. We all know that. So... Um, Let's put Belichick, Belichick, Coach GM off to one side, right? I mean, that's a different one. But Do you think he just exists as like a disconnected soul and body? Like it's just two versions of him talking to one another as they try to make decisions? There, I'm, there are two different Belichicks. There's the one who you ask uh, an injury question about his team this week, who seems like a complete jerk. And there's one you ask about the evolution of the safety position, and you're like, oh, my, I hope my recorder was working. Can I have a second one going? Because this is the best breakdown I've ever heard. Which one is the guy that traded a second-round pick for like six catches of <laughs> Mohamed Sanu, and which is the guy that w- traded for Kyle Van Noy? Are those the same person, or are they different, too? I would love to read the explanation of how that was actually a brilliant move. I mean, I am sure one exists. You know, maybe Someone will make that case, I promise you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to put him off to one side, but I think, you know, to me, you know, uh, Mike Tomlin and, and Kevin Colbert is a gold standard. Look at who Kevin Colbert's drafted, right? I mean, look at uh, Pete Carroll and John Schneider. Uh, locally here in Seattle, people think they're the worst combination ever, but, but uh, and I'm saying that kiddingly, they don't think that. But, uh, they, <laughs> we'll get to that, trust in, me. They're so into the team. But Pete Carroll, John Schneider, no doubt, look at the number of Hall of Famers drafted and compare it to the GMs who've been in the Hall of Fame. How many Hall of Famers did Ron Wolf draft? Can you name him? Any, you know? Uh, how many did Schneider draft? Well, we could probably name four or five, right? Like in so, the first two drafts of his tenure. Unfortunately, yeah, it's yeah. been a little thinner since. Yeah, yeah, it has been. It has been. But I, but I think those two body of work, you know, I think the the New Orleans body of work with Sean Payton, I think he's kind of the GM, but a combination of Mickey Loomis and Jeff Ireland is mm-hmm. probably up there. I think now Reed and Veach. I think people would take Andy Reed and Veach. And, and, and even though Veach is less established, the sum of those two parts, because Reed is so good and he's done it multiple places. Um, and, and then I think you're looking at, okay, does Shanahan Lynch, can they fit in with a group that maybe has Doug Peterson and Howie Roseman, Mike Zimmer, Rick Spielman, you know, guys who've been good, 
uh, and in, and in some cases have gotten to the Super Bowl, even won one with Philly. I think there's sort of a holding pattern of team tandems like that. I, I like the Frank Reich and Chris Ballard one, but you got to win too. They're 21 yeah. and 27. So they haven't done it yet. I, I like how they've operated, but maybe that's the mix of combinations that we're looking at right now. And maybe maybe we should hold Tennessee in there to some some degree too. I would put them right in that group that you mentioned. I think that they're probably sitting there with the Howie Roseman Doug Peterson group of things right behind Veach and Peter and right behind Veach and Reed. I I just, I love the way that they've kind of built this team and the smart, some of the smart moves they made. I also think that the way it's also the guys behind the scenes, right? Like I think that Terry Fontenot has done an incredible job on the pro personnel side for new Orleans in the same way that, Prague has done an awesome job handling the cap for the for the 49ers. This isn't just the head coach GM. It's also the support system that goes along with it. So I think they've done a great job. They've really been able to be aggressive while not putting themselves in bad situations with the cap. And it's more about trusting the coaching staff to bring these guys along. The Joe Woods point is a great one, and we'll get to that with the defense. But when it comes to the offense, you know, people that are just listening to me on this show for the first time will learn very fast that I have more faith in Kyle Shanahan than pretty oh. much any other offensive coach in football. And that's why, even if you're trying to build the case against the Niners on offense right now, and I think it's easy to do, serious question mark at center with Western Richburg hurt, and now Ben Garland is hurt as well. Who's going to play receiver if Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk are both hurt? These are reasonable questions, but I think it says so much that my answer to those questions is, eh, Kyle Shanahan will figure it out. I'm not too worried about it. It's absolutely isn't a luxury to have one guy like that who just sort of raises the floor of an important part of your team, right? I mean, we can almost guarantee. I mean, look what they've done before they, when they even had quarterback troubles, yeah. right? When Nick they Mullins were, looked when pretty Garoppolo good. Hurt, <laughs> Nick Mullins. I think I saw Nick Mullins throw for like 400 yards a game once or something. It was like, what, what, what's going on here? So I, I, I do also have that. I mean, just, just look at, I know they had some good talent, but look at Matt Ryan's one year. Yeah. You know, and it was there with them for two years, but, but the one year is a historically great year. I mean, it's as good of a year as almost any quarterback's ever going to have. So, uh, and I, you know, I think that, I, I think that Garoppolo has been fine, but I don't think he's, you know, driving the success there. And, and I, I'm with you. you. You give Shanahan now multiple years in the same system, try to develop some players. Uh, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine on offense, in my opinion. It's one of those things where you have to trust the plan and you have to trust the how some of these coaches to put guys in positions to succeed. And that's why I don't think it's a mirage because Whenever teams have a huge jump, I always try to think about the underlying causes. And if you can find those underlying causes and those things are still in place, I think there's reason to believe that that momentum is going to continue. With San Francisco, I think it's easy to find those underlying causes. Jimmy Garoppolo was hurt two years ago. He came back. Getting pretty decent quarterback play compared to bottom-of-the-barrel quarterback play is really important. On defense... I think bringing Chris Kasurik in and really unlocking that defensive line, what Joe Woods gave them and how they switched things up, there you can find the reasoning behind this. And I think a lot of that stuff is going to continue. Offensively, the injuries could be a problem. I mean, if you don't have Ayuk and Samuel out there at the beginning, I think it's going to be harder for this team to manufacture yards. They led the league 6.6 yards after the catch last season. It's something that Kyle Shanahan does really well. I think it's one of the reasons they have a type at receiver. They need guys that can really create. And if they don't have that, I think it's going to be a little slow going. But defensively, I think the injury bug could swing back the other way because typically when a defense gets a lot better from one year to the other, you say, ah, you know, regression's probably coming, this and that, but they were hurt last year on that side of the ball. Even without DeForest Buckner, DeFord is going to be back this year more than he was. Jaquiski Tart was hurt for a good chunk of last year. 
even if they're not the second best defense in the league, I still think this could be a top 10 unit based on the players that they have. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, but I, but I think they were so almost historically good when they were good last year that that's not going to be sustainable in the absence of DeForest Buckner. And and to me, D Ford, when's he been reliable? I think there's yeah, a great reason a good point. why. Uh, to, to me, to me, D Ford, Quan Alexander, those guys aren't even going to be on the team in two years. You know what I mean? Uh, they're they're going to move on uh, from these guys, in my opinion. It, now, when I look at their them defensively last year, I kind of split it up. Sometimes I like to do this with just like the first eight games and the last eight, and you, you kind of see what was going on. Last year, they were in the first eight games of the year. Um, their defense added about sixteen EPA per game. Okay, and if you go over. The last five years, that's number two out of 160 teams, okay, for the first eight games. Now, the last eight games, it was less than one EPA per game, okay, which was 67th out of those 160 teams over the last five years. Now, some of that's because of who you play, right? I mean, they they were playing winning teams later in the year. Better better (laughs) quarterbacks, too. Yeah, better quarterbacks, too. So quarterback play was significantly better. So, So, And I totally agree, and I think that that's why – you have to figure out where they're going to settle. And that's the question with these defenses that are really, really good, and then they kind of come yep. back to earth a little bit. And that's over the second half of the season, they absolutely did. They were fifth in weighted DVOA, which puts a lot more emphasis on games yeah. later in the year. So I guess that's the question. I, I, even if they're a really good defense, where would you guess they settle this season as kind of the true version of themselves? Yep, and I think it's for, I think it's definitely a top half of the league defense, and like you said, you know, should be around top ten. If I if I had to pick an over under, you know, maybe it's the seven and a, seven and a half would be their that ranking, right? right? And you, you know, and you're just sort of in that range, which you're going to win a lot of games being in that range. So um, I do think they're going to be good. I just I just don't see how we look at this team and. Overall, offense, defense, and say they're better. You're right. That's that's 100% true. I would say that they, if you're going to replace great players, they did a decent job with it. In the sense of you go get Ayuk to replace Emmanuel Sanders on paper. You go get Ken Law to replace Forrest Buckner on paper. You get Trent Williams to replace Joe Staley on paper. Love that so one. So it's that one's a given, right? I mean, he's a proven quantity. The other guy's rookies. Who knows if they'll work out? But in terms of a plan... I can say that if you're going to have to replace guys, they replace them with as pedigreed players as you possibly could. Absolutely. And in in the case of Trent Williams, that may actually be an upgrade. You know, oh, I think I it think is. The, yeah. I think the other ones probably are downgrades, you know, or pro- at least for this year. Now, you know, you take a receiver in the first round, you're hoping obviously the next three or four years, he's going to give you more than Emmanuel Sanders would have. But, but for right now, I think my point is, um, you know, we're previewing the 2020 season and, I think they've gotten worse in most of those trade-offs than better. Even if it was smart management and you're trying to do this and you're making the best of a bad situation, we're just looking at net. Are are you better or worse? You know, if we if we had to just say that, and you can only answer with one word, better or worse, you'd have to say worse. I, you're, I think I completely agree with you. Yeah, I'm. So. I want to. I'm curious what you think about this. Were you surprised? If you look at the finances of it, and if that's how you rationalize the DeForest Buckner trade, which I think is probably why they did it. Were you surprised that they were willing to get rid of Buckner instead of D4? Because they pr- could have saved some money if they had made that choice instead. Yeah, but you couldn't get nearly as much in return. I mean, yeah, I you think could trade for it. Yeah, they would have to cut, release him most likely or trade him for not, not very much. I think that people don't love D4. You know, I mean, just the, you know, somebody like uh, Chris Ballard in, in uh, Indy isn't going to make a big play for D Ford. He's not going to give up something and pay him, you know, whereas he could have signed him in free agency. If it were, yeah. He was available yeah. two years ago when they were looking for an edge rusher. They went with Justin Houston instead. 
Yeah, there's a reason why Kansas City was okay getting rid of him, right? There's going to be a reason why he's not on the 49ers in the next two years, in my opinion. So, um, you know, he's a nice piece, but he's not a build-around piece. And I think Buckner is a build-around piece. And, you know, they the price was going to be really high for him. And they had those dynamics with Armstead and all this and who do you pay and all that. Um, but it was, to me, it was trying to, trying to just come out okay from a, they, they were in a, sitting in a great situation and now they're in a lesser situation. And we could say that had they handled it worse, they'd be in a worse than that situation, but they're in a lesser situation. They're now paying a lot of money for Eric Armstead, who hasn't been consistently great. I feel like the scheme change last year was really big for him. I remember talking to Chris Kosark the week of the Super Bowl about who really took to that kind of downhill, pin your ears back approach to pass rushing, where they were a lot more passive under previous regimes. And he said Armstead was the guy. Really letting him go last year, I think, kind of unlocked a different version of him. But it's a it's a risk anytime you pay for one season of production when you have three or four or five years of something that's a given. So it, there's no doubt that they went out on a limb by giving him that contract. I'm also curious to see how the defensive line depth shakes out. I thought DJ Jones was really good for them last year before he gets hurt, got hurt. I think that if you kind of have him, Solomon Thomas, and Jafon Kinlaw as that replacement for DeVorest Buckner, you can kind of try to piece together the production. I really do like what they have up front all the way around. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, it's hard to give Chris Kosirik all this credit, right? Because they had all these, the pedigree is unbelievable, yes. all these first round picks, but I kind of believe it. I mean, I, I just, do, I do too. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, is this one of those narratives? Heck, I remember I covered Chris Kosirik when he came in as a player. That's, that's dating me a little bit, but um, there is something to that. I think there are certain position coaches that get another level, you know, get the best out of their guys. So I do have some confidence that they will get, you know, get the best of whatever that best is. I think it's a lesser best, but it's still a good best. And, and Armstead was a first round pick for a reason. And, you know, uh, heck, God, they've got, I'm just looking at the death chart here. It's first round pick. It's crazy. Across the board. I mean, it's just unbelievable, it's, the talent. <laughs> and I, I, that's why I have faith in their ability to create a great pass rush again. Pass rush tends to be sticky from season to season. You know, the, the coverage is a little bit more of a question mark, but I think they're going to be able to get after people. Fun stat, they faced 62 wide receiver and tight end screens last year. No other team in the league was above 43. Wow. You think offensive coordinators wanted to get the ball out? I think they might have. Wow, 20 more, like 50 more. 20 pretty... more is pretty wild. Another fun one is they uh, faced base defenses at the second highest frequency in the NFL last year. The Vikings were number one. Oh, yeah. Kyle Shanahan knows playing. exactly how to get you in the personnel he wants in order to attack you. He's pretty good at that. Oh, yeah, the 21 personnel thing. That's why I always laugh when people are like, you know, the, this running back had the most carries against eight-man boxes. Well, yeah, they were in 21 personnel. You think they're going to have eight guys in the box? Yeah, That's it what... also didn't matter. They did just fine against those. It's also funny that... When they went 12 personnel, they were it had a negative 30 DVOA on offense, which was they were positive in every other way. It's essentially when you, Juice Check was hurt. I always call him Juice Check because that's how I spell it when I have to do it because yeah, I don't know yeah. how to spell his last yeah, name. Yeah, I when Juice Check was hurt, they had to play with two tight ends and they just weren't as good. It, it, he really is valuable to that team. I know it's become kind of like a joke that he's such a valuable fullback, but he really does let that offense operate in the way they want it to. Yes, absolutely. You know, one thing I always point out on, the, and I don't know if it's true in this case, but when people, I always see people say, you know, this personnel group uh, has this type of production compared to this other one. And I always say, you got to make sure we're talking about, we're filtering out third down because some personnel groups are, you are a team will use on third down. Well, third down's hard. Yeah. <laughs> the other team knows you're passing. So it's like 11 personnel. They're not as good. And I'm like, well, yeah, because it's third down. You dummy. It's third and eight. <laughs> Before we move on, let's take a quick break. 
All right, let's move on to a team that you know extremely well, and that's the Seattle Seahawks. Mike, I I really appreciate your kind of place in football conversations for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you tend to be a voice of reason in the football Twitter echo chamber that occasionally can lack some nuance. So that's why I want to know, where do you sit in the let Russ cook debate here? Saying that Twitter can occasionally lack some nuance. I'm, be, I'm being generous <laughs> here. I'm being generous. Yeah, you know, and sometimes I fall into the trap of of almost reacting to it, right? And you almost come on too strong, like, uh, you know, defending Pete Carroll in this case because, you know, because I do think he's a good coach. But I think there's no question they should pass the ball more than they have passed it, given who their quarterback is. You know, the whole early downs, early in games, all that. I've been tracking that for years. Um, I specifically look at the first 28 minute of the, minutes of the game, takes up two minute and first and second down, right? And two years ago, they were historically, ridiculously run heavy. It was the most run heavy approach in those situations since the Tim Tebow Broncos, okay? It's ridiculous. Now, last year, they sort of came back towards, um, you know, the the current century, right? I mean, it wasn't near the top of the league, but they, they weren't historically bad. So what I'll be watching for from them is just a continuation of that trend. I think a little bit more as, as you got the development of DK Metcalf, I think it'd be disappointing if they retrenched and or, or continued to be on the exact course um, they were on last year. Now, you did mention the lack of nuance on Twitter. And I think I did a podcast last summer where I was asked about it. And this stuff was sort of reaching a crescendo. And, it, and I was annoyed. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait a minute. Who do you think knows, has a better idea how to win the game? Pete Carroll, who's won games everywhere he's gone for 40 years, including in New England, where he's seen seen as a failure, but went 27 and 21 with two playoff appearances, basically had the exact same record as the Titans have had the last three years, and everyone thinks they're good. Or the guy on Twitter who is looking at a spreadsheet and is like, you know, I think clearly the EPA says they need to be passing on every play. You know, well, there's Pete Carroll's not an idiot. He knows some certain things about his team, how they're set up, how they're set up to, to with their receiver and how they win, how they want to win the game. And that said too, look at the 2016 and 2017 seasons. They were near the top of the league in how much they passed in those situations. And they were not good offensively. And Pete Carroll didn't like how the games felt. So he's never going to go be Andy Reid, but he has to trend a little bit that way to get, to make the full use of this, this quarterback. He's got a Ferrari. You don't just drive the Ferrari fast when you need to catch up <laughs> or when you want to occasionally. Yeah, just when somebody. you're late. Yeah, that's the only reason you, yeah, you crank yeah. it up to 90 is when you got to get somewhere quick. Sometimes you just drive that thing fast because you got it. Yeah, exactly. Because right? you, you want to because it's garage. fun. Yeah, you go to the garage and you say, damn it, I'm going to go 120. You know, there's no <laughs> one around here. I'm pretty safe. I've got good visibility. And you do it. And I th- I don't think that's ever going to be the MO of Pete, but I think they have to trend a little bit that way to, to really maximize their quarterback. My thought is there's a middle ground here. There's a middle ground between what they were a couple of years ago, even what they were last year, and what they're doing right. And just to throw it 55 times a game. Because if you look at some of the numbers, I think PFF did something where they looked at all the games where he's thrown 40 or more passes. And he's not as good. I mean, I think that that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you're I agree. When you're throwing 25 times a game and they're all deep shots, all play action, your efficiency is probably going to be high. But I do You're think, probably winning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think there's a, probably a middle ground here. And I the reason this question is so important and the reason I think everyone harps on it to the point of almost self-parody in the, kind of the football analysis community is that it's to me the only question 
about their offense. Because if you think about it from a talent and personnel perspective, there are no questions. I mean, this team is set up to be a fucking rocket ship. I mean, you look at Metcalf, Lockett. excited. I mean, I just, I am so, I, I love watching them so much. And I love watching him play so much. All I want is to change the dials a tiny little bit. And that's enough for me. I don't, I'm not asking them to be the 2019 Falcons or even the Chiefs with how often they throw the ball. Just throw it a little more on first down, just a little tiny bit more mixing it up because I think they're so set up to be this absolute explosive monster on offense. Year two of Metcalf, Lockett, even if you sprinkle in like Paul Richardson and Philip Dorsett into the mix, typically I don't like when teams have a kind of homogenous single note receiving core, but with this team and the way they're set up, I don't mind it. That's how much faith I have in Wilson. I think the, I think what we have to be here, though, to make this a great conversation that doesn't lack nuance on Twitter is to understand that we're talking about turning the dials a little bit. They're not wasting Russell Wilson's career. No. That's ridiculous. There's no correlation. In 2018, I think you could have made an argument yeah, that yeah, they yeah, might yeah, have they been. Did. <laughs> if it was 2018, that's wasting his career. But for the most part, they're not wasting his career. That's a total gross overstatement, okay? He, uh, there's no correlation between how much they've thrown the ball and how many points they score, any of that. There's not. I've looked at it. They haven't had their best amazing high-scoring games when they've thrown more on early downs. They they have done that in certain games, and, they, and it's blown up in their face in some of the games. doesn't mean they shouldn't do it more. But, it's, but, you know, like you're talking about this middle ground, and that's where I'm at. That's where I push back when people are like, this is the biggest travesty. This is a fireable offense. I don't believe that. I mean, I think, I think it, the truth is a little bit in between, and, and they just need to shift it uh, a little bit. And they did last year. Came came back a little bit. And now we'll see, you know, if they're going to do it this year. And and I kind of think there's a chance they will. You know, I think with Metcalf's development and now his second year. Not that Russell Wilson hasn't been good, but I think he's been MVP good. You know, I think he's, he's been, been better. He's gotten better. Yeah. There's no denying he's it. better. I yeah. mean, I don't think so. five years ago, maybe five years ago, I don't think even three years ago. And it's interesting. I wrote about this last year, and I think watching the different versions of Russell Wilson has been kind of fun. And in that 2015 season, when he was incredible during the second half of the year, I think you probably could have said he was a top three quarterback. But this year, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that he's a top your quarterback tiers list when you talk to people. He was not that quarterback even three or four years ago. And that's why I think the consideration of how you use him and how much you use him is more important now than it was in the middle part of his career. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. And I, th- I think he's great. And I, I think they know he's great. I think Pete's always going to lean towards the side of the dial that turns it down a little bit. But to the extent that they can at least be more in line with teams that have good quarterbacks, um, I think the better it is for them. I think what's more unforgivable about their kind of conservative approach is the way they consider fourth down. Because that's where they've been so rigid and so conservative that I think it's actually harmed them. And there's less excuses for that. They've gone forward on fourth down in pretty much every situation at the lowest rate in the league since that Super Bowl loss to New England. And again, it's just tweaking it a little bit. A little bit more aggressive on throwing it. A little bit more aggressive when it's fourth and two. And I just think you're putting your team in a better position to succeed when you have arguably the best quarterback in the NFL not named Patrick Mahomes. Yep. I've never thought Pete's been a great game manager at all. I think that's been a weakness. I think he's a wonderful program builder who can bring people together and and get buy-in, especially with a young group. I think I think he's done that really well. 
But as far as the managing of the game, and that, that, that has to do with fourth down, that has to do with end of half scenarios, we can always, I mean, it's not efficient. He's not great at it. And they have good analytics people in Seattle. They do. I just don't think that Pete, like a lot of coaches, is leaning on them to the degree that he should. I discovered something that I want to share with you. And actually, you and I, I think, may be doing something later today, a little demo. But when we were at ESPN, we had access to True Media. Remember True Media? Mm-hmm. Of course. It's great for statistical stuff, okay? I was just looking at it today. I've been using it for eight years. They've got a fourth down decision-making report. Here's what it does. It takes the difference in EPA uh, before and after it is known what type of, whether a team's going for it on fourth down. It measures the difference before those things. So the expectation for scoring before a fourth down play, that's what EPA is, changes based on whether you're going to punt or not. Right? If 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 let's just put it this way, if I'm an extreme example, if I have first and goal at the one, okay, my EPA is going to be about six points. I'm expected to score six points on this drive, okay? If I line up in a punt formation, we're going to lose a ton of EPA, right? Of course. Because we're punting. Yeah. There's no going to be no EPA there. If I line up in a in a conventional position, I'm going to be much better off. Well, this report Manage it, measures those differences every time someone either lines up to run a play or sign or lines up to punt. That's a very valuable thing to me. If we're if we have <laughs> fourth and one at our own 48 and we line up to punt or we line up to run a play, our team's expectation for scoring changes based on that decision, doesn't it? Of course. And I assume for the Seahawks it's not favorable. Well, here's what was so cool about it. I just discovered this today. I, I, they, they're always putting in new reports. So the 49ers were the only team with positive net EPA on that last season. And it was like 1.6 points they gained on it, right? It, it's not a huge, it's not like it's swinging 20 points in their way. The Seahawks were 20th. They lost over nine points of expected points, nine, nine EPA, uh, on their fourth down decisions. And that doesn't mean that that's an absolute fact because they don't know all the things the coach takes into account before a play and whether his quarterback's hurting or whatever, or they're out of running backs like late in the year last year. Maybe on fourth down, you didn't feel as good if you're Seattle. But that's pretty telling to me. Uh, Number one, for a league perspective, only one team was gaining EPA on their fourth down decisions that way. And Seattle was down at 20th, losing nine points over the whole year. When we're looking at the Seattle offense, I want to hit one more note before we move on to the defense. Are we living in a post-offensive line world with the Seahawks? Because I don't think anyone's talking about their offensive line, and they've had a turn of turnover in that group, and I don't really feel good about it. But are we just post that, or do we not even care about the quality of the Seahawks' offensive line anymore? Does it matter? Yeah, is, that is telling me. I think they improved last year. I mean, they sort of went Absolutely. with this different... Of- but they went with this different approach where they just signed a bunch of veteran. They got a bunch of veteran slugger guys in there. I think they've gotten away from that. Here's what I think. As good as I think Tom Cable can be at his best in coaching a, that specific style of line play, right? If he were to get all the guys he wanted. I think that really hurt them to be so married to a certain way of blocking and needing a certain type of player. Remember, they were always getting some defensive tackle and they're going to play him on the offensive line. Loved guys with feet. Absolutely loved it. stories. And I always felt like that was a losing battle, you know? Um, And I feel like now uh, Mike Solari is a great line coach. I mean, he's one of the the top guys in the league. And 
I just feel like they're maybe a little bit more flexible towards playing the way they need to play for who they've got. And, and it's maybe a little bit more in sync even with their personnel department, right? I feel very good about the Mike Solari part of this equation. The part of the yeah. equation I feel less good about is uh, the right side of the line, if you go from center to the right, that's Ethan Pochich at center, which I believe he has that <laughs> job, third-round rookie Damian Lewis at right guard, and some combination of Cedric Abui and Brandon Shell at right tackle. If you can't play for Jacksonville and the Jets on the offensive line right now, I'm not sure it's a good move. So I have a lot of questions about the guys that are playing there. And it's not as if Russell Wilson makes the job easier for those guys. So maybe we just don't care anymore. And we're just writing it off as they're going to be average to below average. And that's fine. But I think we should probably be mentioning the quality of offensive line play that could exist on the Seahawks this year. You know what I think part of it is? I think part of it is, is we're not seeing any preseason games. We're not seeing that's, actual maybe that's, football. Yeah. Actual football is played by linemen. I mean, you know, the, the actual physical point. part of the game is played there. And that's the one thing that has been reduced in off seasons anyway. But this year, we haven't been out at minicamp to see, oh, man, the right tackle's getting smoked. Russell Wilson would have been on his side on that's that a great, play. Great point. And, and, oh, did you see last night I, when they played against the starters in the preseason, Von Miller? Oh my goodness, he would have had 20 sacks if this was a game. You know, those were the types of things that drove narratives in the past, and maybe they still exist. I mean, maybe they're worse than ever. No, I have I a know. feeling we might have some a pretty rude awakening. So they play the Falcons in week one, which that should be okay. You know, theoretically, it's Dante Fowler's there now. Maybe it's, you know, a little worse than it would have been in years past, but not a disaster. They play the Patriots in week two, not a good pass rush. They play the Cowboys in week three. This is actually turning out really well for the Seahawks. They play the Cowboys in week four, which I think Demarcus Lawrence could have a big day against that right side. They play the Dolphins in week week four, and then they play the Vikings in week five. So the Vikings is really the first time where they face two extremely good edge rushers. So maybe they'll survive for the the first month of the season. Yeah, the next week during their bye, they make a trade for a tackle after realizing. (laughs) (laughs) And then you and I are looking for this audio link and we're tweeting it out with a retweet on top saying, told you so, told you so. (laughs) Let's talk about the defense. I mean, obviously the Jamal Adams trade is a huge move. Um, It it really is indicative of where this team thinks it is. And what I like most about that move, one, I feel like it really sends a message to your locker room. Two, he's a great player. Three, I think his versatility makes you better in different spots. Can you use him as a pass rusher? How much does it help Marquise Blair as a nickel corner in his first season getting a lot of snaps to have Jamal Adams there? Does it make Quandre Quandre Diggs even better? It's something that galvanizes a secondary to have a player like that, and it makes me feel a lot better about that unit overall. Me too. And, and we've seen, you know, in Seattle with Pete Carroll, he's built a defense from the back end forward before. You know, Always. It's worked yep. really well. Now, it got over the top when they got the Averill and Bennett pass rush. You, know, that's still a, you, you do know, need one or two pass rushers, yeah, though, total, yeah, which do. we'll get to here in a minute. But I am – here's what I love about it is, you know, I think one of the there's, – there's sort of these tiring storylines around the Seahawks, right? The let risk cook thing. And that's why occasionally I'm, I push back on it even though I, I'm with everybody else. I think they should too. <laughs> but I get tired of these narratives, you know. For a while it was offensive line. I mean, how much do we have to hear about the offensive line? Well, another one that was really brewing on this team defensively was – they're just going to play in their base defense. The number of snaps played with four DBs, they're number one in the 69% league. 69% base defense last year. No one else was above yeah. like 40. Yeah. And some of that is, hey, you're playing two games against the 49ers who are in their base, off- base offense all the time. You're playing the Vikings. They played a bunch of base offense teams. But let's let's just 
let's just be honest here. They played a ridiculous amount of old school base defense in a league that's an 11 personnel league. That's not really, I mean, it has some advantages, but, but I think that totally changes now. I think they're going to be I a think much it's about more... the players they had. I mean, it's about putting yes. your best players on the field, which is okay. They were worried about being able to stop the run. And they're playing teams that ran the ball, you know, like like I said, like the Vikings and like the 49ers. So I feel like they're going to they're going to feel like they can hold up against the run better now uh, with Jamal Adams in a, you know, if they have to play in their sub defenses. So I think their defense is going to be faster. It's going to be more ferocious on the back end. Um, I do think that there's still, cons- you know, we'll talk about the pass rush, but in general, I'm with you. I think that, I think their defense is going to be much better and it has a chance to be in the top half of the league this year. I totally agree. I, I think that the back half is good. I think that in my opinion, when you're building your secondary, you just want answers. You want enough bodies and enough talent back there to have different combinations. And eventually you get a five that you feel good about. And with the players they have, I think you get there. You know what, what the combination is, whether flowers or Dunbar wins that second corner job, that's not the most important thing in the world to me. I think they're going to have a good functional secondary and Bobby Wagner is still one of the best players in the league. KJ Wright is still good. The back seven, I feel good about, I think they're going to be excellent. I have serious, serious questions about who hits the quarterback on this team because they did not blitz that much last year. They've never blitzed that much under Pete Carroll. They ran four. Uh, they rushed four on 73% of their snaps. It was the seventh highest rate in the league. And if you're not going to bring heat, that leads to having fourteen or up a sacker hit on 14% of dropbacks last season, which was the lowest in the league. And that was with Jadevian Clowney and Quentin Jefferson. So now you take out arguably your two best pass rushers, on a situational basis, now what does this pass rush look like? I don't think Bruce Irvin is the guy that's going to unlock it. So if you're not going to blitz and you're going to rely on those four, are you going to be able to get after the quarterback enough to take advantage of that secondary? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think that's the key area that wasn't upgraded in a way that, uh, other than having, I think, probably greater flexibility at the Leo position where they do have Bruce Irvin, they do have some guys that maybe they didn't have in the past. I'm with you. I think that Jadavian Clowney is probably over overrated in people's discussion. I think so, it. too. I mean, he did he did wreck some games, but that's like another thing that drives me nuts on Twitter. I just have to step away. Like the, oh, the Clowney sweepstakes. Did you feel those just cranking up? Without the I mean, it's happening hard right now. The, I mean, wow. the same the Saints and their 16 cents in cap room are making a strong push. Unbelievable. I mean, the buzz around this player is, I mean, it is so, there's so much buzz that like the Houston Texans were willing to take like a third round pick for him. You know, so there's reasons why he has value and there's reasons why he's being overrated. And I think the truth in the middle, they'd be better with him on their team. No doubt about it. I feel like he's not. I would want to rely on him as my number one pass rusher. I would never pay him $20 million a year to be a fixture in my defense. But when you don't have anyone else and you're really just looking for a splash play here and there, like the Seahawks were last year, I think it's extremely He won games. He would mean more to them than he would mean to most teams. And I think that's why I'm surprised they weren't trying to go get him for one more year. I'm with you. Well, I think that they have tried. And I think that he is controlling the process. He hasn't signed with any team. Yeah. You know, how much does he want to be in a training camp, right? How much... how much does he want to really want to be there? You know, does he want to be in Seattle? Well, we don't know any of that, right? And those are all things that come into play behind the scenes that, um, you know, in the meantime, we're like, well, they should just sign him. Well, he has to sign with them, right? I mean, he he's going to sign where he wants to sign. I think they've made a competitive offer. Uh, but you're, there's no question it would feel a lot better. It just might feel better than it should feel when he signs them. I think fans would feel like they've 
you know, really gone over the top. And I, I think I think he would just help him. Before we get to the Rams, let's take a quick break. If you were to guess, on average, how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. Basically, a month. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all for the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship you your medication with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Maze, M-A-Y-S, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Maze for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Let's move on to the back half of this division and let's start with the team that the shine has come off the apple a little bit, but I think there's a lot to talk about here, and that is the Los Angeles Rams. My boyhood team. Before I became a Raider fan in the 80s, I was actually a Ram in the 70s. I was, I was, a, I was a Ram fan. Who was your guy? Like, who was your favorite Ram back in the day? Jack Youngblood. I had an 85 jersey. Oh, wow. And one of, one of the coolest things is, uh, you know, from covering the Rams when I covered the NFC West, I, you know, I've, I've met Jack Youngblood. I've, you know, we've had a couple exchanges here and there on Twitter, and I'm just like, those types of things of when you were really a fan, like you stop kind of being a fan when you're covering or you're just more of an adult, you know, but when you're covering the team, it's a different dynamic. Speak for yourself, Mike. But those guys, when you followed them, when you were a kid, when you were just so innocent as a kid, like Jack Youngblood was that guy to me. And, and, uh, great memories. Even I, even though I, am not that old, I was towards the end of his career, but, uh, how do you feel about the Jersey change then? I'm sure it hurts you deep. The fact that they're going away from the classic blue and yellow. I think I am a habitual contrarian because oh, wow. I don't I don't hate it as much. Like I was looking at it the other day, like like the logo to me looks like something off the side of a news van in in the Will Ferrell movie, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but it does, doesn't it? Look like it really does. It, it really does. Like, does. Does that make a four? Is that Channel Four? Um, you know, assemble the news team, right? Um, but but I in looking at their team and like looking at the practice video and stuff. I'm like a little open-minded. I think it's a sharp look. I think it looks I actually different. do it looks too. Like, the blue looks, like looks really good on camera. I think it's going to look yeah. really good on TV. I think on TV is going to look like a video game. It looks like video game color to me. It looks like Madden. It pops for sure. I feel like if we're looking at the Rams right now and their outlook for 2020, this is what happens when you go all in and lose. This is what happens when you double down on five different hands and you bust on every single one. And that's okay. I mean, I understand why they did some of the things they did. I think the Ramsey trade is a little misguided, but I understand a lot of the other bold veteran acquisitions. But now, when that doesn't work out, you're left to pick up the pieces. I mean, this is a team with $34 million in dead money that's being handed out to Brandon Cooks and Todd Gurley. Goff and Aaron Donald are making more than $25 million each. They're the only team in the league that has two players costing them that much. I wanted to ask you, this is something that you probably have a better handle on than I would. Is there like a weird cash flow issue with this team that we're not really talking about? The fact that they were willing to pay Brandon Cooks $22 million to not be on the team? <laughs> well, 
Cash is a hugely important factor internally, right? I mean, I think we always hear about cap and we like to analyze cap. You know, what percentage of the cap is the guy? Cash is number one king inside every organization, even if your owner, maybe even sometimes, especially if he if he's a multi-billionaire from, uh, from generational wealth. As right? Stan Kroenke happens to be. As Stan Kroenke is. Um, Stan Kroenke likes making money. Let's just make it clear, right? I mean, he can afford to spend money. He likes making money. And he's put out a lot of money too, right? They're in the middle of the stadium thing yep. and it's being dragged out. Now you're not going to have fans in the games like you thought you were to the same degree. You're going to, everyone's going to take a bath this year. So I, I don't think that cash flow issues are the reason why the Rams have made their moves. I don't think it's been the primary reason behind moves, but it certainly has to be a consideration for them um, right now, more than at other times, more than maybe for other teams for the situation um, that they're in. I think a lot of this just gets down to all these moves we're criticizing all could have been criticized for the exact same reasons when they happen. I don't feel like we're second guessing. I don't believe like we're having it both ways. The Brandon Cooks trade is just to give him that extension and then to eat $22 million in dead cap space. That just seems like a weird one to me. All the other ones I completely understand. The Cooks one's just like, man, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to just keep him and pay him to be on the team. I actually haven't talked to them about that move, but but in looking at it, I thought that it was a year earlier than I thought it was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. But, but you also have to try to gauge what am I going to be able to get for this guy? When when is his value maximized, and who's going point. to give it to me? And so you have in Houston a team that was like, hey, for whatever reason, they were tired of DeAndre Hopkins. They didn't want to go down that road and pay him and and deal with not paying him. So they were like, you know what, we we we're, we're gonna they're giving away picks. Right. Well, next off season, let's just say this year, what happens? Brandon Cook suffers another con- concussion. God forbid. But looking at his track record, that's that's what's happened. Right. Brandon Cooks plays 11 games this year and catches 54 balls for 783 yards. I'm just making it up. But let's just say it's that type of year. Then people know you're going to cut him. Right. So what are you going to get? So, you know, is there a it doesn't mean you're making a it's a great decision, but you're sort of like the 49ers where you're, you're trying to make the best of a situation that isn't as good as you, as you hoped it would be. Well, there's no guaranteed money left on his deal after this year. So, I mean, the Texans are willing to maybe give up a little bit more because they have flexibility. I can understand that. I think that makes a lot of sense. So as yeah. we consider just the Rams roster, the tenor of the conversation around this team, I'm curious as somebody who talks to a lot of people around the league, like you do, where do you think the NFL is on Sean McVay as a coach? Because we're two years removed from him being the golden boy. I am as guilty as anybody about talking about the influence he had in the league, which I think still exists, by the way. I mean, a lot of teams chased their Sean McVay. So two years removed from kind of our you know dalliance with him as the guy. Where do you think just the NFL sits in general about how they feel about Sean McVay? Okay, I think that the league is looking for a second act schematically. I think that is a component, right? I mean, that he had great success, then was sort of solved uh, with the outside zone run game, all that type of stuff, and then hasn't necessarily had the comeback. So that, that's a secondary factor. I think in general, the league still sees him as a good, really good young coach, you know. And I think so do I. One of the one of the things maybe we in the media didn't communicate well enough initially, or maybe didn't understand it well enough initially, was you know the Rams weren't hiring him because they thought he was Kyle Shanahan. They weren't yeah. hiring him because they thought he was a master schemer. They thought that he was good in the check the other boxes of the head coach that maybe even Kyle Shanahan has to grow into, right? Which is leading the team, communicating your message, um, being the guy you want to have uh, in that lead chair, sort of driving the car. Um, for your organization for years to come. I think he's still seen in a really positive light that way, you know, and uh, I think a lot of teams would love to have Sean McVay be their guy and they might look 
at the Rams and say, golly, they should have helped out Sean McVay a little more and not screwed up this move here, that move there. E- even the move to pay Jared Goff what they did, which I, they wouldn't have done if McVay was standing there saying, don't do it, I'm sure. but uh, I know for know, a fact they, they wouldn't have done it if McVay was, wasn't standing yeah. there saying, don't do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he's responsible. He's complicit in some of the moves that they've made. I'm, I'm not saying he's not. But I think from the outside, people might say, um, you know, he's not the reason for what's why they have some issues. I totally agree. And I also, even if this seems a kind of a pessimistic conversation, when I look at their outlook this year, I think the offense is going to actually be pretty good. Like if you look <laughs> at what happened last season, you know, they had one of the biggest single DVOA drop-offs in the DVOA era. They went from second to 17th, r- huge fall. But you can understand how that happens. You know, you have this absolute efficiency monster with the play action approach it doesn't really work they're forced into some disadvantageous down and distance situations where you're not the one dictating you have to be in your drop back game a little bit more often than you want they ran the ball out of shotgun less often than any other team in the league they became more predictable when they have to be in that drop back game but your offensive line gets really hurt you can see things kind of start to fall apart and they were still average and some of the elements and watching like you said the second act schematically i think is so interesting because watching him try to problem solve McVeigh, I'm talking about in real time was actually pretty cool. You realize the 11 personnel is not working. You go to more 12 in the second half of the season. It is working. You're using the same wide receiver and tight end screens. You're manufacturing yardage. I think even if Del Lyon still has a bunch of questions, when you think about Higby, the three receivers with Van Jefferson stepping in who people think is going to be awesome and has had a really good camp, I still think the pieces are there for them to be a top 10-ish offense if they can solve some of the issues. Absolutely. I mean, we sort of act with like with the Rams, like they went 2-14. and 14 Exactly, you know? exactly. I mean, and we're almost like we're measuring them against them at their absolute best when they were scoring 55 points. And yet we all know, we all, every one of us would have said, that's not sustainable. I mean, what they were doing was unbelievable for that run. It's probably not going to be like that all the time. Uh, you mentioned the personnel usage. You know, I think that McVeigh actually just in a perfect world, had he drawn this up, he he's probably more of a 12 personnel guy anyway. Exactly. They, he was only doing this like with the Seahawks because yeah. the best players happened to be the three receivers. Right. He walked into a team that was an 11 personnel team. So they ran it 104% of the time, which was a little surprising. <laughs> I didn't know it'd be that much, but you know, he was just going, that, that's not what he's going to, that's not what he's going to be just because he did that. So I, I am watching for that next act. I think there is something to that. And all good coaches, you know, you're going to get figured out a little bit, right? You're going to get, you're going to get times when it doesn't work as well as it did. So I'm anxious to see that part of it. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know how great Goff is ultimately, if he's going to, if he's going to get him over the hump and we can talk about him, but, but I do think that it's overrated to, you know, the criticism is sometimes a little heavy handed. They were still almost what a 500 team last year. They could be that again. I'll be curious to see how they find cheap gains this year because last year they had the best DVOA in the league on wide receiver and tight end screens. Not surprising. They're really good at scheming them up. They've done some really cool stuff with Higby, but they actually had the lowest percentage of their throws to running backs last year. It was 10% of their passes, which when you consider how good their screen game was when Gurley was there early and all the play action screens they did, I'm just surprised they didn't lean on that a little bit more. I would really think you'd see more Daryl Henderson this year just to give Goff some more layups. So here's something that I found really interesting. Remember when Gurley sort of fell off a cliff for a while and we were all trying to look at it like, like, okay, what's exactly going on here, right? And one of the things I noticed was that 
for a long time, Gurley was producing a ton of explosive gains on these receptions, and they were these screens. He was just, for whatever reason, he was able to pop by explosive. I, I'm just measuring like more than 15 yard gain. The right? Saints I mean, game, I remember that year the, in the 2018 yeah. season, it was just incredible on those screens, just doing so much work. Yeah, and and then all of a sudden, those stopped almost completely, and he had like one over the next number of games. And I don't, I'll have to look, you know, we can look and see and if any of that started to come back. But why did that happen? You know, I think it's easy for us to say, well, Gurley got hurt. He wasn't the same player. Really? Was he, was he so diminished that he couldn't turn screens into big gains anymore? Or did people start to be able to be a greater awareness and they just weren't fooled as much anymore? I think it's got to be some of that component, right? Because the screen is all about fooling people, right? And that's what it is. So, after a while, you get tired of being fooled, right? And so you're not fooled as often. Has it gone away? And are we are we going to see them be a little bit more league average effectiveness, efficiency on screens, or can they get it back? It was actually the Minnesota game in that 2018 season is the one I was thinking of. I was thinking Alvin Kamara went off in the Saints-Rams game that year. That's fine. That's all right. I, I, I don't mind. I'm figuring it out in real time. Speaking of figuring out in real time, I want to ask you, when you are going through the quarterback tiers this year, by the way, if for some reason you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read all of the work that Mike has done around his quarterback tiers, which to me is one of the most important pieces of football journalism that exists every year, please go to theathletic.com and check that out. But if you have, I'm curious, when you were having these conversations, what were your main takeaways from what people were saying to you about Jared Goff? Well, I think he's the ultimate outside forces guy, right? So like his first year, he's completely ruined by, you know, people who going to blame Jeff Fisher and a bad staff and no, uh, you know, no players around him. And then it's this optimum situation with Sean McVay, where he's supposedly running out on the field and whispering right directly into his ear, like this close, <laughs> exactly what to do on the play. And then they weren't as good. The offensive line fell off and he wasn't as good. So I think though through that, what we see is that he's not somebody who, um, transcends what's around him, who's lifting up everyone around him. He's kind of a little bit of the product of, the, of a system who can still make some amazing throws. I mean, I think we, you know, there's a reason he was drafted early and at his best, he will make some amazing throws. But I think he's still seen right now as more of a win with quarterback than a win because of quarterback. And that's why, you know, he's not rising up in the second tier where we're talking about him as someone who's going to be a one next year. I think people are wondering, God, could he dip to be a three? And this year's maybe going to tell us. It's so tough for me because I, I think you're totally right in the we're talking about them like they're two and 14. I feel like we're talking about Jared Goff like he's Mitchell Trubisky, which just isn't true. I mean, you watch some of the throws he made last year. He's still so talented. And, and I don't know if he'll ever be that guy he was on that Thursday night against Minnesota. That one game, that one year where he just, I, I told him after that game, it's the best game I've ever seen a quarterback play in person. That th the throws he made. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I don't know if we'll he ever see them. that consistently again, but I still think he's going to be okay. I still have faith in their ability to figure it out on offense. My main concern with this team is about what's happening on defense because a lot of the pieces are back on offense. On defense, this thing is blown up and we're starting over. I mean, it's Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, Michael Brockers, and I guess like what, what I have no idea what else. And you have Brandon Staley coming in for Wade Phillips. By the way, I was, I was talking to Wade Phillips yesterday and I asked him if he was available to ch chat with me. And his response was, yeah, I'm not doing anything today. And I start at noon, which is just the most perfect, <laughs> perfect Wade Phillips response ever. He just, 
Uh, he may, I, I am always in a better mood after I talk to him, and I was yesterday. But when you're looking at this defense, I mean, do you have any hope that kind of a change of scenery and a lot of moving pieces, they somehow you know, have kind of a randomness bounce? Or is this a unit that you're really concerned about heading into the year? Oh, I'm I'm concerned about it. I mean, we talked about McVay off the top, and I think when Wade Phillips was running that defense, Sean McVay wasn't always watching the game. You know, he's yeah. over on the Gatorade cooler, you know, and you've got this head coach of the defense and Wade Phillips who, uh, by the way, I went and looked this up when we were preparing for the show. When Wade Phillips started coaching defense in the NFL, it was 1976, okay? Their, their, his first game was against the expansion Tampa Bay Bucks under John McKay, <laughs> all right? He was game planning to stop Dan Fouch before Fouch was with Don Coryell, okay? So that's the level of experience and sort of gravitas. I mean, they had a 40-year career diplomat running their foreign policy, Okay. I mean, this is somebody who's polished, who's been in the room with Margaret Thatcher and maybe even knew Winston Churchill, okay? <laughs> and now we're going to Brandon Staley, who hasn't even called a defense in a preseason game. He's never called a, a defense in the NFL. You can't even name the colleges that he called defenses at. People wouldn't even know that their mascot is. Could you have a bigger change? Yeah, absolutely. He's literally half his age. He's half his age. He may be great. He may be great. He learned from a good one. I mean, he comes from that Vic Fangio tree. He was in Chicago. He was in Denver. There are worse guys to learn from. But we're going from 40 years of experience in the room with Margaret Thatcher to somebody who just started working on the campaign last week. And that would maybe be okay if the same players were around and you could lean on a veteran like Eric Weddle or somebody that was really established at every level of your defense, that's just not the case. I mean, you think about Donald obviously is great, but there are so many questions about who's going to play linebacker on this team with Corey Littleton gone. And they've already had some injuries there. You know, Troy Hill has done well, given a bigger opportunity. Jalen Ramsey's Jalen Ramsey. I think that Taylor Rapp was kind of an agent of chaos last year in a fun way. <laughs> John Johnson was hurt for a lot of the year. He's back now. That unit I'm fine with. Everything else, I have serious questions. As somebody who watches a lot of Chicago Bears football, I have gone through the Leonard Floyd experience, and it is just definitively underwhelming. <laughs> really was that in, was that in relation to your expectations after they traded up like one inch to just, get them just or? a little bit yeah i mean if you think it's that's the tough thing is that you know their edge rushers weren't great last year but dante fowler is somebody that nfl teams were making a point to go get this offseason leonard floyd was released by the bears and then you have samson ecubom who's Ebicom, who's been fine, again, in limited snaps, but I, I still think there's so many unproven pieces on this defense, and when that includes the coordinator, I don't know, man, gives me pause. Yeah, it does me too. It feels like a really, definitely a year of transition. It wasn't like the coordinator was brought up under Wade Phillips for three years and, you know, and knows it that way, and I and I agree. I think Leonard Floyd, you may be, you know, we may be underrating him a little bit. I don't think, I, I think he can... Uh, be a, a good player for them and maybe give them close to what they were going to get from Fowler had they paid Fowler, right? That's all part of this dynamic. Fowler was playing for something and now it's a different dynamic and he hasn't exactly been a consistent performer year to year. So I understand the move they made for Floyd. I think it can work out for them, but I'm with you with the question marks. I don't feel like, like if we said the 49er over under for a defensive rank using a good advanced metric was seven and a half, I feel like it's 
17 and a half. That's or exactly 20, the number you know, I was going to say. 17 and a half is exactly the number <laughs> I was going to say. And, and that's the question. I think that's the biggest thing with this team. Let's say it settles at 18th. The offense needs to be really good. And I have faith that it can be. This is a pro Van Jefferson podcast. I loved this week when let, uh, they asked Aaron Donald if anyone stuck out during practice and he just said his number. Like that to me is the biggest sign of respect you can get as a rookie is if Aaron Donald calls you by your number when they ask him who stood out during training camp. I love just savvy route runners that can hit the ground running and just be NFL ready right away. And he seems like that kind of guy. But we're really leaning pretty hard on Van Jefferson and a mediocre offense from last year to carry this team. Absolutely. And we're, we know we're assuming that Andrew Whitworth plays all 16 games in a decent, what if in week six, you know, he's, he's, I think he's all, you know, I think he's about 55 years old. Um, you know, he goes down is in, injured and you're, now you're going to play. Now you're shuffling the rest of it. Right. I mean, it could all, and that be, line even outside of him is a big question. I mean, they were not yeah. good last year. Yeah. And they've hoped, you know, they've, Wanted to you know, kind of had to go with this mix of young players, but I'm with you. I feel like I, I what I feel like is who's going to rescue you on both sides, each side of the ball, right? So I don't think Goff is a rescuer. I think he's better than what we're saying. He's not Trubisky, right? There's a reason he got paid and Trubisky didn't even get a fifth year option. But I also believe that he's not one of those guys who's going to, uh, you know, if it starts going down the drain, he can't he lift might get the washed. players around him. He might get washed with that, right? And then uh, defensively, uh, to me now, now McVeigh. That's where McVeigh has to have the second act that can do that, right, on the offensive side. So mm-hmm. I think we're looking for that on offense, and then defensively, they do have a couple star players. But is Staley in his first year? Is anyone there going to be able to say, you know what, this is the adjustment we're making defensively, and in the second half of the year, we're going to be like Atlanta was last year, right? You know what I mean? Where you suddenly give yeah. it to Raheem Morris or whatever, and it may not be sustainable, but for for eight games or whatever, we were better. And I, I think those are the questions we have of, of who's going to do that for them to some extent on both sides of the ball. Before we move on, I want to tell you guys about a special offer for our listeners. Now is the time to celebrate. Football is finally back, and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, has millions of reasons why you should be excited. To kick off the football season, DraftKings is giving new users a free shot at a $1 million top prize, with a total of $3 million up for grabs for this Thursday's football contest. Getting in on Thursday's single-game showdown is easy. All you have to do is download DraftKings using promo code MAZE. That's my last name, MAZE. Draft six players for the season opener. Stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. So head to the app now to start making it rain. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using code MAZE will receive a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game like having a shot at a million dollar payday. Download the DraftKings app now and use code MAZE. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize and $3 million in total prizes. Don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter promo code MAZE, that's my last name, to get a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. That's code MAZE only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, let's get to a team that has been a pretty big talking point around NFL circles this offseason, a team that I am very excited about watching this year, and that is the Arizona Cardinals. I want to ask you this. Are, are you? It seems like you might be ready to throw a little bit of cold water on this. I might need you to do it because I think watching the, the Kyler Murray tape yesterday, I was getting really excited. Should I, should I be excited or should I kind of walk this back a little bit? 
No, I think you should be excited. Okay, you awesome. Know, I, I appreciate I, that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's all. I think many times though, there's been the you know, look at all the moves Arizona made, or you know, there's 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 been excitement before that hasn't always been realized, and that's true for for every team. But what I like about them is, let, let's just make a comparison to another team that had a highly drafted rookie quarterback who had a good rookie year. Okay, it's Baker Mayfield. Okay, yeah, and Baker Mayfield, they screwed him up. And he bears some of that, but they they switched to Freddie Kitchens. You know what I mean? And then Baker Mayfield's kind of his makeup was a little bit, you know, we weren't sure if he was going to be the consistent guy. I feel like at least in Arizona, we've got we're we're keeping the scheme fit the second year. We've got a, a head coach who was probably better than we expected, Much and should better. be better than that. Should be better than that, and showed some ability to adapt during this rookie season. You've got a quarterback who seems to like. Temperament-wise, maturity-wise, like I, I'm willing to bet on him more than I would be on a Baker Mayfield, right? So I'm kind of hopeful and anticipating, you know, that it's going to be a, a good building block second season. I think where I pour cold water in is he wasn't on fire last year, and he's not going to suddenly be on fire this year, in my opinion. I think he, he should just be, you know, good. I went back yesterday and I watched five games of theirs late in the season. And this is going to sound like it's a contradiction, but it, it, it can't exist in the same time. I thought his tape would be better than it was, but I was no less excited after watching it, if that oh, makes good. sense. And I think that the way that happens is that they were extremely inconsistent. I think they were 28th in variance last year on offense. I mean, there were games that they just looked awful. And there are so many moments where you're like, oh man, they are so close. And you can kind of see it, right? You have an offensive coach that was very smart, very adaptable, who I have a lot more faith in than I have Freddie Kitchens. You're replacing the Demir Bird targets with DeAndre Hopkins targets, which seems like a step <laughs> in the right direction. They were the most injured offensive line in the league last season. You bring in Josh Jones, who I think is going to be able to hit the ground running at right tackle. You have some interior guys that you feel you know pretty decent about. I just think that the arrow is pointed up. And if that little gap, that inch away from some of these big plays that they had last season, they can close that gap. I absolutely could see this being a top 12 offense if things break the right way for them. Maybe even better than that. Yeah, it's funny. Tell me if you're, you know, if your impression off of watching the video um, jives with this. But one of, the, one of the things that kind of stuck with me for the, one of the guys in my quarterback tears uh, piece said was that he kind of wants Kyler Murray to run a little more, you know, and just like run to gain yards a little more. That doesn't mean we want him to get Josh Allen slobber knocked between the hashes, putting his head down. But just be to use that threat a little more. He's a little careful with that, and that if he were to do that more, it could open things up um, even great, even more for him. And then maybe be looking to to throw off some of his movement too, uh, instead of just being safe and scampering and getting out of bounds. I think that they were less aggressive in every way last year than I kind of anticipated when I sat down to watch them because he's such a good deep ball thrower. I expected there to be more of that on tape. He was in the bottom 10 or right around the bottom 10 in average depth of target last year. And they actually led the NFL. It was almost twice as much as the league average. 19% of his throws were schemed throws, essentially wide receiver or tight end screens. It really felt like they were trying to insulate him last year in ways that I didn't expect when I watched the tape. So now I'm just wondering if, are they going to open it up a little bit more? Is there going to be more chances for him to really show off that deep ball in ways he couldn't last year? Because I think that's going to be the biggest difference for them. Do they just let him take over in ways they were kind of reticent about last season? Yes, and that cautiousness goes over to him with the ball. And look, 
he is so, he is small out there. I mean, it's a little distracting at first when you see. Yeah, how it's small weird. It is. Field. It's a good it's like, word to use. Yeah, like you're cognizant of it all the time. You're like, is his helmet too big? You know, he he looks he looks unusually small. So I don't want him to get hit, but I do. I'm with you. I want to see a little bit more swagger and aggressiveness and making a few more plays. Another thing I I noticed just statistically, I did another sort of first half of season versus second half of season just to see, is there a narrative of, hey, he was hitting stride and improving? I have no doubt Kyler Murray was a better quarterback by week 17 than week one, just the experience of it. But there was a big drop in EPA per pass attempt first eight games to, to last eight. I mean, it, it was his his EPA per pass attempt over the second half of the season was negative. He was terrible in weeks 14 and 15, I think. He had a two-game drop been in the back half of the season where he was awful because his best game of the year was against San Francisco. And then he had that terrible two-game stretch, and then he was okay in the final two games against Seattle and the Rams, where his last two games, I watched them yesterday. And these are small sample sizes of eight games. Absolutely. And look, Rodgers, Brady, Wilson, Watson, they all had big drops in the second half of the season, too. This happens. There's fluctuations. But we are trying to base a projection off of 16 games, right? And so when we do that, we we put take out the magnifying glass. My, I think we need to go to 30,000 feet and just say, we really liked what this guy showed us as a rookie. We can see the talent. We can see how he can be good. We can see how he can be good in that offense. And we're optimistic because... DeAndre Hopkins is a wonderful receiver to add for him and can be a good off-schedule one. I want to see more totally. of those off-schedule plays. He Playing with Deshaun, I think, sets him up to be successful with yes. Kyler Murray. But Kyler has to meet him there. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean do it all the time. Sometimes Deshaun Watson is his own worst enemy on some of those plays. But but do it enough to make it a threat. Add some Russell Wilson to this offense. I think Kenyon Drake was a nice thing, too. They've helped the quarterback, I think, in ways that that – we can be optimistic about watching them yesterday. The thing that I just, I know the numbers are there. They were second in rushing DVOA, but I did not expect just to be smiling from ear to ear while watching the design of their running game. They did such an incredible, obviously they're running into so many light boxes because they play a lot of 10 personnel and they're really spread out. But even beyond that, the way that they create space and angles in the running game is awesome. Sean Kugler, in my opinion, who's their offensive line coach, and I thought was an amazing addition to their staff. I think he's one of the most underrated position coaches in the league. Because two years ago when he was in Denver, they were fifth in rushing DVOA. And that's that year that Philip Lindsay was just running all over everybody. They do an incredible job scheming up the run game. And I think that's going to take a lot of pressure off of Kyler in year two as he kind of starts to figure stuff out. I know, and they really haven't been a run team there forever, right? No. I mean, you go back to you know Bruce Arians, uh, who is more balanced than people think, but I mean, it was driven by the quarterback. And then certainly before that, you had Kurt Warner, you know, in their best years, and were a throwing team that really struggled to run the ball, uh, you know, at least consistently. So I'm with you there. Maybe that's a, a something that can balance that out and help it help Kyler Murray, and then he can be effective off of that, right? I mean, you don't have to run the ball well to be effective in play action and those other things, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. And also, I talked to Cliff Kingsbury about this last offseason. I was just curious about his take. It, it wasn't even related to something we were discussing. I asked him, it was kind of in relation to the Rams' approach to play action, all that turning the back under center. I said, do you think that play action could be as effective with, an un, with a shotgun quarterback as it is under center? And he said, yes, if the quarterback is a rushing threat. And they used a lot of play action last year, and I expect them to use a lot of it this year because I do think Kyler does it well. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons I don't resist uh, like Goff being under center so much is because I, there's no question when you are under center that there is a higher volume of run game that you have to defend. There's more totally. things you can do. I think one of the things that can help you um, in the shotgun is to just run the pistol, right? You can have the back behind you, and it helps you be able to go The Lamar way. Jackson playbook. 
Yeah, and open things up. So I don't, I don't know exactly what they're going to do there, but I think you make good points, and and uh, you know having a run game isn't what you want to hang your hat on necessarily, unless you're Baltimore, but um, it helps. I'm curious because when I was thinking about their defense, and I, you know, as I project them, I thought maybe you know were they a top bottom three defense last year? How bad were they? They actually weren't that bad. And so many people that are kind of talking about this team as a maybe dark horse playoff contender are kind of couching it in, yeah, but their defense is just so bad. They were 23rd in defensive DVOA last year, and I don't they didn't get a ton better, but you drop Isaiah Simmons into that defense, you bring in Jordan Phillips from interior pass rush, you get Patrick Peterson back for the whole year, Byron Murphy can play in the slot now because Drake Kirkpatrick can take over, even if Robert Alford got hurt. I could absolutely see a world where Vance Joseph can coax an average defense out of this team. And if the offense takes a giant leap, I don't know. This team seems to have a pretty decent ceiling to me. Okay, I'm going to push back on it. All right, I'm ready. That's fine. I'm getting too excited. I'm getting too excited. Here's what we got. Okay, what do you think Vance Joseph's best year was as a defensive coordinator in the league? It's a trick question because he's only had two years as a coordinator in the league. Yeah, because he was the defensive backs coach in Cincinnati, right? Yeah, Yeah, he he had the 2016 year with Miami. And so we were we were just giving it to the Rams over not having you know having an inexperienced coordinator. <laughs> Vance Joseph's been around defenses a long time, but they have an offensive only, they have an offense only head coach. Cliff Kingsbury is not clicking on the headset and saying, "I think we got to run more uh, big nickel here." Is he? Not at no, all. and no, it probably to their benefit, honestly. Yeah. So all their eggs are in this basket defensively, and Vance Joseph's unproven as a D coordinator. So um, he has less. He actually has less defensive play calling experience if you just look at any level than Brandon Staley. Now, he's done it in the NFL, so that counts a lot more to me. But how much trust fully do we have in the ability on a short off season with no preseason games um, to really maximize with a rookie in Simmons who is – there's a projection involved with the position. Um, you mentioned DVOA. They were 32nd in defensive EPA. And if you look at the last 10 years of defenses, they were 310th out of 320. Just EPA. That's, that's incredible. Just no, that no gap texture. is amazing. That's no texture uh, b- because DVOA is going to look and say, yeah, but they were playing this good team. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. have a little more nuance to it. But I like EPA because it doesn't do a lot of that stuff. It's just raw. What did you do? This is the, the raw uh, information independent from what position your offense put you in. They, they were 310th out of 320 defenses over the last 10 years. So they have to be better. better. That's my logic. Yeah, yeah, they have to be better. So I'm, I would be hopeful they're better. I don't think there's a, there's no history that says that Vance Joseph was a bad D coordinator, but I don't think it's a given that it's just going to all be great on that side of the ball based on what we saw last year, uh, based on what Vance Joseph's done in the past, based on who they added, who they have. You know, I think we'll get better from Patrick Peterson on a healthy year with some motivation, probably. I think Buda Baker's a great player or a good, very good young player, but Chandler Jones is a great player. I was going to so say, they, if they we have, went through this entire podcast without talking about Chandler Jones, it would be the most appropriate thing possible as somebody who's never Chandler talked Jones about. Podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, but, but I sort of went into last year and I've gone into, I've gone into the other years saying, well, they have top players at all three levels of the defense that I would name the guys and then they wouldn't be good on defense. So. Um, I'm you know, hoping I think real hard for some it. randomness. I'm, I'm banking real hard on randomness on defense for this team and their ceiling. I'll give you another little stat nugget here. So they gave up 
106 explosive pass gains last year, more than 15 yards. It's most in the league. That's incredible. They gave up 13 in a single game to the Rams. If you look at some of their, you know, where they were in the EPA ledger defensively, teams, Atlanta smoked them. Teams, teams just lit it up some of those games. So, you know. I'm hoping a little more stability. That's I'm hoping yeah. a little more stability yeah. with a huge jump on offense, and they can be an interesting team. All right, yep, Mike, we're here. We're at, we're at the the crucial moment of the podcast. You you teased it a little bit at the beginning. Who is winning the NFC West? Okay, I'm kind of wimpy on the predictions. I I really look at like what are the things that I can trust the most in sure. a division. And this is what I said last year. I actually picked Seattle last year, I believe. And I think they would have won the division if they didn't lose all their running backs in the last week, which, hey, the, the 49ers would have won it by more if they didn't lose their injuries. So that, that's, not a, uh, that's not totally legitimate. But I, I bank on Russell Wilson, to me, is the one thing I know. Like, the, they have the highest floor of any team because of him. I think there's fluctuation potential with the 49ers for the reasons we talked about. Um, Wilson is the best player at the most important position who wins every year, even when his defense is bad, even when his coach wants to run the ball 75 plays in a row. Um, I think they've made upgrades that are tangible. I don't think we can say that about necessarily the Rams, necessarily about the 49ers, even to some extent. Well, you can't say it on Arizona with Hopkins, but I think that combination with the quarterback makes me say Seattle. How about you? You just convinced me. I was teetering on the fence. I was back and forth between San Francisco and Seattle. I'm going to pick the Seahawks. That was a compelling case. I'm not saying that you swung me. It was close already, but that was enough. I I, Because I'm just seeing it in my head. It's like, man, that offense, Russell Wilson, year two, DK Metcalf, explosive plays. As much as I trust Kyle Shanahan, and I do think that San Francisco is right there as a 10 and six wildcard team. But I think I'm going to go with Seattle as well. That was a very if compelling Seattle's case. offensive line causes them to lose the division, you're going to never have me on again. You're going to I say, Sando, you talked me out of this I, thing. It's going to be, I really should have just trusted my gut. But again, we might be <laughs> post-offensive line with the Seahawks. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. I'm sure we'll have you on during the season. I could not be more excited to be working with you. I've loved your work for so long and uh, just the utmost respect. So thanks for the time, bud. And thank you to everybody else. You know, We will be back tomorrow. Thank you guys for listening to the Athletic NFL Show. Please subscribe. Please rate the podcast on your favorite platform. I would sincerely appreciate it. But until then, we'll be back tomorrow with our next division preview. Talk to you guys later.